Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Morning! Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Jim Carafano. I oversee the foreign and security policy research here at Heritage. Nothing going on in D.C. today. No news, um, which is, you know, we shouldn't forget the importance. So the issue before us today is the continued U.S. engagement in Afghanistan, what that does for U.S. interests and what it does to advance the cause of prosperity and freedom and security in the world today. And it's, it's always an issue that's worth revisiting because America has invested significant time and treasure in, in this. Uh, and it's worth it to think, are we, are we doing the right things and going in the right direction? So we, we could not be more honored to have the group of experts and scholars that we have here to talk today. It's really just quite remarkable. And to lead us off, I have the privilege of introducing General Jack King, soldier, skatesman, scholar, and newlywed. Um, General Keene is a foreign policy, world-renowned foreign policy and national security expert. He is the president of GSI Consulting and serves as chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, which is a tremendous think tank if, you, if you're not familiar with him. Um, in 2019, he was appointed by the President Trump to the Board of Visitors of the United States Military Academy at West Point. And I'd like to point out that that directly correlates with how well the football team started doing. Um, he's a member of the Commission on National Defense Strategy, selected by the late Senator um, Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Senator John McCain. He's a member of the Secretary of Defense Policy Board. He's also a trustee of Fordham University, um, which has an okay basketball team, not so good football team, and advisor to the George C. Marshall Foundation, which is a truly remarkable institution if you're not familiar with it. Uh, general Keene served as a four-star general, completing 37 years of public service in December 2003, culminating his appointment as the acting chief of staff and Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army. He is a graduate of Fordham University with a bachelor's degree and a master of arts degree from Western Kentucky University, also a graduate of the Army Warrant College and the Command Engineering Staff College. And among his many, 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 many awards and, and honors and recommendations, in 2018, General Keene was the first military leader to be honored with the Ronald Reagan Peace Through Strength Award. And so we are so fortunate to have him here today. He's going to make some remarks. We're going to see if we have time at the end to carve out a few minutes for questions, if you have for questions, uh, if you have questions. And so with that, please join me in welcoming General King. I appreciate that. Good morning, everybody. Beautiful day outside. Yeah, Jim's a great guy. Uh, we spent a lot of time in, in Fox News green room together. And... Uh, and I get to see him, you know, so I, and I say, well, that makes a lot of sense. And he does make a lot of sense every time he opens his mouth on national television. He, like I, we believe it's an honor to be able to talk 
the American people on national TV. Um, and listen, uh, let me tell you, we appreciate your many years of service to the United States military, and particularly the United States Army, and also your 18 years of service to the Heritage Foundation. And I'm delighted to be here uh, to speak to you and also to communicate you know, through the Internet and just say publicly how much I appreciate what Heritage truly does, your thought leadership and the products that you develop. I frankly agree with most of them when it comes to foreign policy and national security. And I think you help shape the nation in terms of the ideas and the ideology and, and the security of the American people, which is very critical. The subject is Afghanistan today. And we've been at it for a long time, 19 years. And I think if you mention it, a lot of the American people just sort of yawn um, because it's been there so long. But we stand here today, and Afghanistan is vital U.S. national interest and it directly impacts the security of the American people. And that's the simple facts of it. A lot of people may want to disagree with that. They want to shape that a little differently, express it a little differently. But I think those are the facts. I want you to just briefly, I want to tell you what my association with Afghanistan has been, just to establish my bona fides a little bit for you, because in terms of what I'm about to say, it began for me as vice in the when 9-11 took place, I happened to be in the Pentagon on 9-11, so I've had a personal stake in this for some time. We lost 85 teammates that day and went to some, something in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 funerals, which uh, impacted me uh, quite dramatically. My wife, Terry, when she was alive at the time, um, it, it was a moment in our lives we'll never forget. But the reality is, is that from its from the beginning, I was involved. I was the first senior leader to go to Afghanistan after we toppled the Taliban. I met with the CIA operators who were there, special forces, 160 aviation who put our guys in, and many of the warlords uh, who we were working with uh, in the Northern Alliance. I made a number of trips since then in 2002, 2003, before I left the Army in 2003, but then the com subsequent commanders in Afghanistan, many of them worked for me, so they asked me to come back and do assessments for them, which I, I was delighted to do. And, and then that actually culminated when the president made the decision, that, that is Obama, to change the strategy in Afghanistan and do what the media described as the Afghan surge, following on the, the Iraq surge. And they betray us, unexpectedly parachuted into Afghanistan to take McChrystal's place when he was... Uh, relieved. And Petraeus, having done assessments for him in Iraq for two years, in 2007 and 2008, every few months for a few weeks, he asked me to come back and do that. So the, the frequency of visits increased rather dramatically for me, you know, during that surge period. And since that time, the current situation, I met with Ambassador Zal Khalazai twice, after his year-long negotiations with the uh, Taliban, I got to read the draft agreement that they were proposing at the time, which came to naught uh, after the Taliban continued to kill us and the president pulled away from those negotiations, which I thought was the, the right, right decision. I've had discussions several times with senior Trump officials on this subject to include 
you know, the President of the United States a couple of times. I'm not going to discuss my discussions with him, but I want you to know that I've had those discussions with him. Um, I've spoke multiple times with President Ghani, just recently as uh, two to three weeks ago on this very subject, and where he is and where he thinks, you know, we're going. A few months ago, I met with the chief of staff of the Pakistani military. He and his president claimed that they're different from their predecessors. I was very direct and frank with him. I told them how through multiple administrations, they lied in our face. They've got American blood on their hands. Um, their intelligence services and their army has been supporting the Taliban. We have prima facie evidence of all of that fact. This is not speculation. This is fact. And they've been harboring the Afghan Taliban at two locations in Pakistan, in Miramshar and Quetta. And they supported two fertilizer factories where 85% of all the IEDs that are made inside of Afghanistan to kill Afghan people, Afghan security forces, and Afghan and American troops all originate from Pakistan, all of which, of course, they summarily deny. But what I'm telling you are facts. And I told them straight out, you're going to have to prove to me and others that you're different than what your predecessors have been and that you have interest of stability in the region and how you can achieve stability in the region by supporting the Taliban is beyond me. Um, also, I'm current up until uh, a few weeks ago, I think, on where the Taliban are. I didn't get that from U.S. sources. I did not get that from the U.S. government. I did not get it from the Afghan government, but they are, in my mind, reliable sources. Um, let's talk about the potential for peace or continued war in Afghanistan. In my judgment, regrettably, I'm not optimistic about the potential for a peace settlement. And a peace settlement is what I, when I say peace settlement, I mean between the Afghan government and the Taliban. I'm not talking about a peace deal between the United States and the Taliban or a ceasefire, all of which may indeed happen. But that's not peace. That's a step, possibly in the right direction. So what, what, more importantly, where, where is the Taliban? Well, as a result of a meeting that three of the Taliban negotiators had, who came out of Qatar and met in Peshawar and also in Quetta with political and military leaders of the Taliban, in my judgment, where they are is very clear. And the purpose of the meeting was for the negotiators to gain support from the leadership in terms of what they were doing, and also to make certain that they're all on the same page. The Taliban leadership position is very clear. Their top priority is to get the United States to sign an agreement to withdraw completely. They are willing to make just about any statement to get that, any promise to get that. They'll do a ceasefire to get that. They'll promise negotiations with the Afghans to get that. And why do they want that? In their words, it's a massive boost to the movement. It amounts to a U.S. admission of defeat, and it guarantees the legitimacy of the Islamic Emirates. 
is what they call Afghanistan. They believe the agreement will help tip the political and military balance in favor of the Taliban and help them to eventually overthrow the Afghan government, something they have never, ever given up. The leaders are explicit. The, the agreement with the United States is a means of taking control of the Afghan government, not reaching a political settlement. And let me say right at the outset, they don't want a political settlement. They don't want to share in power. They don't want to participate in a democracy. Why is that? They're very practical. 85% of the country reject the Taliban. They've been doing that for 19 years. This is the most unpopular insurgency in modern times. Most insurgencies are against the government that have legitimate grievances. People have legitimate grievances. And the people in Afghanistan have very legitimate grievances against the host country and the host government. But they do not side with the insurgency. And that's uncharacteristic of most insurgencies where the people identify with it because they want change. The people in Afghanistan do not want to go back to the tyrannic, fanatical rule of Talimanism. They lived it for almost a decade. And it was a bloodbath for them. Ideological doctrinaire commitment to the fanaticism of Talimanism. They want no part of it. My sources inside Afghanistan who are politically astute would tell, tell me that if they had an election, they don't believe there's a single district that the Taliban could win, even the districts they control, because it was a free and open election, the, the districts they control, the people absolutely do not want them, because they're living under their boot. They're living under their tyranny. They're living under the fact that they can't educate their children. The only education they can participate is Taliban doctrine. And there's no advancement for them uh, in terms of their own personal growth and development. So that is critical to understand. The, the Taliban leaders also are willing to negotiate a ceasefire. But they want that ceasefire to be short for two reasons. One, if you know about the Taliban, you know they're not a homogeneous organization. And they can't control it all. And they've got hotheads out there that won't agree with the ceasefire. And after so, so a week or so, they'll break it. But the most important reason is the second one. And this is a fact. Many of the tactical fighters are tired and weary. They're done with this thing. Not their commanders who are in Miramshaw and Quetta. Not the stooges for them in Qatar doing the negotiations. I'm talking about the guys that are fighting in the districts, in the provinces, day out and day out. Platoon commanders, company commanders, and the troops themselves. They're weary. And they will melt away. And they fear that if there's an extended ceasefire. But nonetheless, they're willing to commit to one for their own reasons. In conclusion, the Taliban leadership, in conclusion to what their viewpoint is, supports the continuation of war in Afghanistan against the Afghan government in pursuit of eventually a military victory. And they believe there's no need for a political settlement. That's not what they're saying, but that's what they believe.
and they believe that's the path they're on. So, where's the U.S. position now? Well, the U.S. is willing to draw down to about 8,600 troops. The U.S. commander in Afghanistan um, came to that number based on what he believes his requirement is, having nothing to do with negotiations, just based on what he believes his military requirement is. But that hasn't obviously been announced. It's been talked, that number's been talked about. Um, and certainly negotiations with the Taliban are a factor. The other thing is the, um, the drawdown to 8,600 means we will hold at that number and not conduct any further drawdown pending political developments and the conditions on the ground. And that's a very important distinction. That flies right in the face of where the Taliban leadership is. I think the President of the United States is very clear-eyed on where we are in Afghanistan. I think he understands what he's dealing with in terms of the Taliban, that he can't be trusted. I think he's clear-eyed in dealing with what the problem is we have with the Pakistanis. He's certainly trying to deal with that issue like his predecessors have. Uh, he, but the reality is that there certainly is agreement in this administration that Afghanistan is still in the United States national interest and we cannot turn over to the Taliban to guarantee the security of the American people in the future. And what am I talking about? One is Al-Qaeda having a safe haven. Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan as we speak, but the numbers are not consequential. Across the border, they are consequential in Pakistan. That's where the leadership is. It wouldn't take much to cross back, cross that border again, and establish a safe haven. And that is our concern. And we should take some credit for 19 years. The primary mission is being accomplished, which is to prevent another attack on the United States originating out of Afghanistan, perpetrated by the al-Qaeda. That has not happened. Despite the fact the war has gone on too long, and his explanations for that, and, and most of them are not good, the reality is that mission is being accomplished. The second thing, and by the way, if anybody thinks that the Taliban, despite what they'll say publicly to gain approval, will separate themselves from the Al-Qaeda, think of this. President Bush offered the Taliban before we went into Afghanistan to depose them, the opportunity to separate themselves from the Al-Qaeda. And they choose not to. So what do they put at risk? in choosing not to separate themselves from the Al-Qaeda. One, thousands of Taliban fighters would be killed. And two, they could lose their regime. Both of those things happened. And they did those because they did not want to separate themselves from their brothers. If they were willing to give up all of that, you actually believe that what they say now, if they make a public statement separating themselves from the Al-Qaeda, that that statement could be trusted based on past behavior, I seriously doubt it. Second is ISIS. ISIS is growing. And ISIS is sort of like the far-right radical version of the Taliban. And because some of the fighters who are in the Taliban, who resent even that negotiations have taken place, have moved over and joined ISIS. ISIS is growing. 
and they are going to be a problem because they have aspirations like al-Qaeda does in answering to their leadership for operations outside the region. Taliban do not, but al-Qaeda and ISIS do, and that brings in security of the American people. And here's a fact that people don't understand. The Taliban do not have the capacity to defeat ISIS in Afghanistan. That's a fact. So this brings us to U.S. primary concern, which is security of the American people. If, if possible, the United States will make a deal with the Taliban, but it will be condition-based, ceasefire, negotiations with the Afghan government have to start, and we would not draw down below 8,600 unless there was serious political progress and the conditions on the ground would have to change dramatically. Now, when we talk about 8,600, what does that really represent? But it re represents America political will as well. And in discussions with Ashraf Ghani, those numbers matter that has a quality all of its own. We know, and he knows certainly, his 300,000 fighters are doing the fighting, not the United States. We're training and assist except for what our counterterrorism force does. But it's a reflection of the political will of the American people supporting the effort there, and that does matter. Secondly, intelligence that comes from that. The United States intelligence is extraordinarily valuable, and it absolutely is a major enabler. Third thing is air power. Air power has been very decisive under General Miller and the authorities that President Trump gave him to deal with the Taliban. So the, the current situation, as I said at the outset, is I'm, I'm not optimistic about a peace deal. And I don't think this pathway dealing with the Taliban was the move in the right direction, in my view. Um, I think the negotiations have to be with the Afghan government and the Taliban. And any deal with the United States will undermine the legitimacy of the incumbent government and also undermine the Afghan national security forces. I believe that before I had a conversation with Ashraf Ghani, and he reinforced that to me without me bringing that subject up are primary concerns that, that he has with the United States making this kind of a deal. So we'll see what happens. I do think there likely will be some agreement. And I will, I will end on, on saying that we're there for 19 years, but most of that is U.S. policy decision that drove that. We never put the forces in there to build the security forces that they needed to be. I personally argue with Rumsfeld over that. And I lost that argument. We knew the possibility of the Taliban reemerging could be a factor. In December 2001, we made the decision to go to Iraq. I was there uh, in the tank with the Joint Chiefs uh, when I was told by the chairman, December 2001, that we were going to go to war in Iraq. And I knew then, I said, what about the al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan? We've got to finish that. And we knew then that the CIA would start to move towards Iraq. Satellites would start to move towards Iraq. That was big war. All of our resources would start to move towards Iraq. And guess what? Afghanistan would be on a diet. It would become an economy of force. Nobody expected the war in Iraq 
to turn the way it did after liberation and invasion, and that we would never be able, listen to me, to put consequential forces into Afghanistan to deal with the reemergence of the Taliban until 2008, at the end of the Bush administration, when the surge was successful in Iraq. Obama comes in, changes the strategy, recognizes we have to have some kind of surge. McChrystal Petraeus recommended to him 40,000 minimum to succeed in a military campaign. He cuts that recommendation by 25%, and then he pulls those forces out in 15 months. That doomed us to a protracted war. We had no chance at that point for any military success that the United States would be influencing. That is where we are today. One of the issues we have with protracted wars, it tests the will of democracies. And the way you need to deal with protracted wars is communicate to the American people about that war, about the progress in the war, about the setbacks in the war, and be direct and honest with them. We've had three presidents, I would suggest, that have dealt with this war, and all three, none of them, have done an effective job of dealing with the American people on the war. What's right about it? What's wrong about it? Why, why is it protracted? Where are we going in the future? That President Bush, President Obama, and now President Trump. And that is, is certainly lacking. And I'm hoping that after some decisions are made about Afghanistan, that it's clear to the American people if we're going to stay, why we're going to stay, and why it's important to the American people. Thank you. I'll take some questions. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is, there are more than 60 million Americans who voted for Trump. If he wants to get out and see the firework between Indian, us Pakis, and ISIS, why it's unacceptable to you? And number two, you said 80% of Ghani don't like uh, uh, Taliban. Uh, don't you think that 85% of Ghani lie to you? Because as you know, many Christian scholars believe that it's sanctified in Islam to lie. So maybe they just misled you. Taliban are part of them. They are Pashto speaking. They are majority. How come 85% people hate Taliban? This is impossible. Thanks. So you, uh, I just take those surveys at face value. They've been conducted by multiple sources. Uh, I think uh, they're somewhat valid. Uh, I, I disagree with your premise completely. Uh, I can tell you unequivocally because I was at the point of the spear and, uh, for two years in dealing with the, uh, what the Taliban were doing and the fighting we took place. And when, when, we, when we killed the Taliban and removed their stranglehold over the people, I, I talked to the people, hundreds of them, over multiple times in visits and what that meant to them and all they, what they wanted from us is help us with a future. Our kids have no future under the Taliban, none. Help us get teachers in here so we can get them to go to school. Help us with some other things that we need in terms of roads. They didn't want anything else. We took, we took the terror out of their lives. This winning hearts and minds of the people in Afghanistan, not necessary. All you gotta do is remove the Taliban and the people respond so positively for it. I've touched that personally myself.
and, and, and I also, based on that empirical feedback, I trust the surveys. Next question. Yes, General, I appreciate this. Uh, just two things. You say that the conditions to uh, draw down U.S. forces to 8,600 troops. Uh, my question is, what exactly conditions would uh, merit that drawdown? What exactly, what conditions uh, would we be looking for? And uh, second, uh, my name's Eric Barnum, by the way, I forgot, sorry. I'm Eric Barnum with the House of Representatives Armed Services. Um, and my second thing is, uh, would you assign this photograph for me? <laughs> <laughs> Why well, miss the last thing? What did you say? But um, I don't know what the conditions are, to be frank, but I, I, I can sp speculate with maybe some degree of accuracy. One is a ceasefire, uh, certainly longer than a week or two, uh, an absolute commitment to it. Uh, two is a, uh, a genuine commitment to negotiate with the, uh, with the Afghan government and not with uh, what the Taliban want to do. They want to go beyond the government because they don't recognize the Afghan government as being a legitimate government, even though there's been four national elections and we're about to announce at some point, I think, uh, who won the last, last election. Uh, but that, I think, has some legitimacy, even though there has been some fraud associated with some of these uh, elections. And I, in my judgment, you know, Afghanistan is still a very fledgling democracy, hardest form of government in the world. It's not easy to start from scratch. But I think those are some of the, the elements that would be there. And then to get any further than that, I think is, is, is a, a line that's pretty solid in the minds of this administration. There would absolutely have to be a settlement, a bona fide peace settlement between the government of Afghanistan and also the Taliban that, that really has some life to it. And not, it's not a bunch of rhetoric just to provide a way to, for us to make an exit. Tim Stanazai from Vice of America. Uh, can I make a small comment before the question? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm originally from Afghanistan, and uh, I uh, migrated to Pakistan in 1981 from a village that had 44 uh, houses. Now, uh, my wife's relatives are still living in that village and there are 29 orphans and Taliban have control on that village still. So that can tell what is the life under Taliban. Mm -hmm. The people who could escape from those uh, Taliban to the city, they are daily labor, whether they can find a job or not. So uh, that's beside the point that 85% of Afghans are not stupid not to have education, and currently, every year, more than 100,000 Afghans are graduated from high school and college. They want jobs. I should say that they don't want mosques because they have enough mosques to go and pray in. Like any other human being in the world, the young people want jobs, and Taliban have no jobs, even when they were on power. So that's beside the point. President Ghani in CNBC uh, interview said, expressed a concern that if Taliban want to have uh, real peace, they should come and talk to legitimate government of Afghanistan. But if they want to come 
to destroy the government as a Trojan horse under the name of peace. How much, uh, can you explain that, uh, how much his concern is real? Yeah, I, I, th um, I think this administration certainly has come to the realization that, you know, the Taliban is not to be trusted, but then the less we're willing to negotiate and move towards a peaceful settlement, certainly um, the American people are owed that after 19 years to see if there is a, a solution there. But I, I do say, as I mentioned, uh, everybody's very clear-eyed in terms of who we're dealing with here. And if they're willing to make true political accommodations towards a peaceful settlement, uh, fine. But we'd have to see the evidence of that. And the government is willing to move in that direction. Ashraf Ghani is willing to move in that direction. He has the same skepticism that the United States government has about the intentions of the Taliban but we're going to give them an opportunity to prove themselves. And I think you have to have a very healthy dose of skepticism about it. And, and given what I know about what they're thinking, I'm not optimistic at all that, at least in the near term, they're willing to do this. I will say this, and this is also from sources that I have confidence in. I mentioned at the tactical level, if we took a bottoms-up approach to dealing with the Taliban as opposed to top-down, these are people that live in safety day in and day out, the top-down leaders. The Doha, living in nice hotels, been doing that for now a year and a half. The delegation team, the other political and military leaders in Quetta and in Miramshar, relatively secure areas. Pakistanis make certain of that. And <clears throat> but the tactical commanders, they want to get out of this thing. They are weary. They are willing to make serious accommodations. There's operational commanders, I can't get into the specifics of it, who are actually also in Pakistan and go back and forth, or also who are willing to make accommodations because they want to return to their country and not be hunted down. So they would want amnesty, to be sure, but that they are much more willing to participate in a political process in terms of power sharing than I think what the Taliban leadership is willing to do. And that would take a different approach, and we would have to sh start with a different negotiating team to achieve that end. I don't know if the administration has a stomach for that, to be frank. I just don't know. But I, I do think that's an avenue that we could try. Next question. Unfortunately, I think we're out of time, but before I ask you to join with me in thanking General King for his remarks, um, let me just ask uh, the folks to stay in place. We're going to bring the panel up and do a quick fire drill. So, um, so panel, as soon as we're done, jump up, and then we'll get started. So please join me in thanking General King for his remarks. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Great. Uh, everyone, uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. This begins the panel discussion. Uh, we have a very uh, distinguished uh, panel, a fantastic panel, in fact, 
uh, representing uh, different think tanks around Washington, D.C. The idea behind this was to show that there is a, a, a united, if not the same views and ideas, at least the, a united cause that Afghanistan is a very important for uh, very important mission for the United States and our allies and for the Afghan people, and, it's at a, and that it is a mission that is worth uh, seeing through. I'm going to ask each uh, panelist to speak between five to eight minutes, and then we will open it up to a question and answer session. Uh, when we get to this point, if you could keep your question uh, uh, pithy, and if you could um, identify yourself in any affiliation you might have, that'd be very much appreciated. Um, and I will uh, ask, or I will introduce each speaker uh, individually um, before they speak, so I won't do them all at once. And I also, I will finally say before we kick this off, that uh, because of the impressive uh, backgrounds and the vast amount of experience that our panelists have, if I sat here and I read their full bio, we would just be reading bios. Uh, so I'll just give a brief overview of who they are and what they do. And then if you're interested for more, I'm sure there's enough information on Google these days. You can learn more about our panelists. So our first uh, speaker today will be Ambassador Hussein Haqqani. Uh, ambassador Haqqani is the former ambassador of Pakistan to the United States, and he is now the director for South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute. So I'll turn it over to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so um, I've been asked to make uh, so so uh, make my points in five to eight minutes. I have 13 points to make. Uh, so, <laughs> so what I've decided is I'm going to try and telegraph them as quickly as possible and then do the, what Luke has done in relation to the biographies, refer you to several articles that I have written over the last one year uh, on Afghanistan. Uh, there's one in the Washington Post that I co-authored with Javid Ahmed on how the Taliban haven't broken with al-Qaeda yet, uh, with evidence of it. Uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which I said Taliban smell blood, in which I made more or less the same points that General Keene did. Uh, and so those are two important uh, pieces. And then those who want to go back further into history uh, are welcome to read a New York Times piece that I wrote in 2012 uh, titled, Don't Talk to the Taliban. So the fantasy of wanting to talk to the Taliban is pretty old, and the disappointment is old as well, and it will continue. That is my considered opinion uh, as somebody who has lived uh, with the issue uh, since 1979. Now, let me begin by saying that the United States can be proud of what it has achieved in Afghanistan. The Afghans are in a better place. Afghanistan is in a better place. Uh, it is not home uh, to terrorists in the way that it was before, uh, out of reach. Yes, there are terrorists. Yes, they plot, but they can be found. They can be hit. They can be taken out. Uh, and uh, uh, the people of Afghanistan are much better off. Uh, women are going to school, life is, uh, uh, there's an economy, uh, and people are not being forced to live a very specific way. Second point is, the reason why the United States has been in Afghanistan for so long is because it couldn't determine what it was going to do in Afghanistan. It was a political problem, not a failure of the U.S. military in any way. Uh, we and never had a 19-year plan for Afghanistan. We had 19 one-year plans. And because we kept doing that, that is the reason why uh, the United States ended up staying longer. Uh, the United States actually could have left Afghanistan sooner if it did not continually uh, signal the enemy uh, that it was about to leave. 
uh, Mullah Umar of the Taliban, the founder of the Taliban, used to have a saying uh, that uh, uh, the Americans have watches while we have time. And basically, when you kept telling them that, oh, one more year, two more years, maybe three more years, and we are about to leave, you basically just signal to them how they can wait you out. The same applied to those who were backing and harboring the Taliban all this time. Another point that I would like to make is that the Taliban are an ideological group. They are not an insurgent group with specific grievances that can be addressed. Uh, we are not represented in parliament, so can you give us 20 more seats like some of the ethnic insurgencies? Or uh, uh, can there be a little more uh, equitable distribution of wealth, etc.? They have a totalitarian ideology. And ignoring that ideology uh, is a big mistake that people in this town have been making while recommending talks, talks, talks with them. Uh, so similarly, I would point out that it's a cliche uh, to say that, oh, all world wars must end in a peace settlement, uh, because that's not, just not true. In case of insurgencies, studies after studies show that insurgencies usually end uh, with a decisive victory of one side or the collapse of another. Uh, otherwise, as long as some neighboring country is willing to support an insurgency, an insurgency can go on for a very, very long time. Look at how, how the Khmer Rouge lasted a long time after all the atrocities they had done. They didn't have the support of the people, but they actually just had uh, a base to operate out of. And as long as they had a base and somebody was willing to sell them or supply them weapons, they kept at it. And they kept the peace process going as well. Uh, I actually invite everybody in this audience uh, to uh, go and look at the Khmer Rouge peace process. Actually, the Taliban strategy seems to be no different. Uh, real peace talks, as General Keane rightly pointed out, will be those between the Afghan government and the Taliban. So therefore, if the American talks with the Taliban undermine the prospect of talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban, then that is not conducive to peace. What we will end up is having a deal, but no peace. Uh, the, the, the way the talks have been structured so far only indicate to the Taliban an American eagerness to withdraw. So the, so the more you read the Taliban, and the Taliban, by the way, keep producing stuff. They give statements. Yesterday they were celebrating the uh, uh, the downing of an American plane, even though they didn't. They stopped short of saying we shot it down. It probably was a crash for 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 other reasons, but they still celebrated it. So the way they think, all they are doing is making sure that the Americans. Leave, the United, uh, leave Afghanistan. They are engaging in withdrawal talks. What is the consequence of that? Well, there is a jihadi narrative. The jihadi narrative out of which Al-Qaeda was originally born and subsequently other groups have, uh, uh, have uh, propped up. They all have a narrative that the jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets forced a superpower to collapse. And the Soviet Union had to withdraw because of jihad. Now, if they are able to get the United States to withdraw, then there will be a new narrative. We will see a resurgence of jihadi ideology all over the world. A lot of people in madrasas around the world, in Islamist uh, uh, group meetings around the world, in extremist uh, recruitment effort around the world will now have a video saying, jihad got the Soviets out, one down, now jihad gets the Americans down, out. We are on the march. 
And that is something the United States certainly does not want. Uh, lastly, I think that people have been ignoring the role of Russia and Iran in recent years. Why are Russia and Iran supporting the Taliban? It's not because of ideological proximity or similarity. The Iranians are Shia uh, uh, Islamists. Uh, the Taliban are extremist Sunni Islamists. They actually massacred Shias when they got into power the last time around. Iran's reasoning and Russia's reasoning is the one reason why Americans should not be so eager to hand over Afghanistan back to the Taliban. And their reasoning is to use the Taliban to get the Americans out. So if the Russians and the Iranians don't want the Americans out, I think it's a good reason for many of us to at least start wondering why and why the United States should stay in. And my last point, 13th, uh, is about uh, Pakistan. I think that there has been a huge mistake in this town. Exactly 10 years ago, 2009, I was Pakistan's ambassador to the US when this discussion was going on. Uh, it's the same discussion. What are Pakistan's motives in Afghanistan? And I think that when people start seeing it as India versus Pakistan, this, that, et cetera, et cetera, they're actually just uh, channeling what many Pakistanis want them to think. Very frankly, Pakistan's project in Afghanistan has to do with Project Pakistan. Pakistan is a multi-ethnic state uh, dominated by one ethnic group uh, and dominated by the military. A very small, short history. Uh, people in Pakistan were Sindhis long before they were Pakistanis. They were Baloch long before they were Pakistanis. They were Pashtuns long before pa they were Pakistanis and they were Punjabis long before. And somehow the Pakistani elite has convinced itself that instead of allowing itself to evolve as a multi-ethnic state, it should now somehow erase those identities and move forward. For that, Afghanistan is very important because Afghanistan being a Pashtun uh, sort of uh, dominated state and considering the historic fact that the Pashtun parts of Pakistan came into what is today Pakistan because the British took them over from the Afghans, uh, after the multiple Anglo-Afghan wars and the creation of the Durand line, which everybody understands is a, is a line that divides people who speak the same language, have the same culture and same ethnicity, that has created insecurity on the part of Pakistan. So Islamism is Pakistan's answer to Pashtun nationalism. And that is why if the Taliban don't succeed, there will be a project next. Because it was, if you remember, during the war against the Soviets, Pakistan supported groups like Hekmatyar's extremist Islamist group. Again, Pashtun Islamists offered them a chance of taking the Pashtun populace away from its ethnic nationalism. As a Pakistani, I think that it's irrational and it's very disadvantageous to Pakistan because it will keep Pakistan into forever wars as well. But from the American point of view, if you understand that, then you will stop falling for this line every few years about, okay, we'll, we'll broker a negotiation, we'll, we'll, we'll bring stability to Afghanistan, all we want is stability in Afghanistan, uh, and we don't want Indians to interfere there. All points done in exactly eight minutes. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Reminds me uh, of a, uh, a saying I heard a few years ago from a Pakistani who said something along the lines of, I've been a Pashtun for 3,000 years, a Muslim for 1,600 years, and a Pakistani for about 70 years. 5,400. 5,000, okay, that was a few thousand but years. Yes, yeah. basically the sentence. Yeah, okay. Very good. Oh, right, okay, very good. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for those remarks. Our next speaker, we're very honored to have the president and founder of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, 
5th May here. And uh, since we're on the subject of Afghanistan and we have the president and founder of FDD here, I'll, I'll do a plug on your behalf uh, for the uh, your foundation's um, Long War Journal, which is a great open source resource for events happening in Afghanistan. I know there's no such thing as shameless self-promotion in Washington, but I thought I would make that plug for you. Some anyway. of us still have some shame. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, Cliff, please. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I'm in very much in agreement with uh, Ambassador Harkani's remarks and Jack Keane's remarks. So in order to add some value, I'm going to suggest something. I'm going to suggest that we need to make this problem bigger rather than smaller. We're in the habit of talking about the war in Afghanistan. It would be more accurate to say that what's underway there is a battle in a global war, one that did not begin in 2001, nor did it begin when al-Qaeda first began to get organized in Afghanistan as early as 1988 with its stated goal, quote, to lift the, to lift the word of God to make his religion victorious, uh, nor did it begin in 1979 when an Islamic revolution erupted in Iran and went across the Gulf in Saudi Arabia, a rebel who called himself the Mahdi and his followers, we might describe as ultra-Wahhabis, uh, occupied Mecca. No, it began much earlier. I'm not making a clash of civilizations argument here. I'm merely stating an historical fact. For 1,400 years, the West has been engaged on and off in armed conflicts with Islamic imperialists, conquerors, and expansionists. Uh, the first Islamic army sprang from Arabia in the 7th century and with astonishing speed became the dominant military and political force throughout the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, and much of Europe. Great Islamic empires and caliphates dominated the civilized world for a thousand years. Uh, among their victories, the conquest of the Christian capital of Constantinople by the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate in 1453. Among their defeats, the Battle of Tours, where Charles Martel defeated the Umayyad Caliphate in 732. Another, the defeat of the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate by Christian forces at the gates of Vienna in 1683. And most consequentially, the defeat and collapse of the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate following World War I. Now, most people at that point figured, oh, well, that's the end of it. There would be no more jihads against the West, no more wars to establish Islamic uh, supremacy. Uh, we're all Westphalians now. We're all going to have nation states. The Turks are just like us. Everything's going to be fine. Well, reports of the death of jihad proved premature. The goal of those who call themselves jihadis uh, has been, and by the way, and they're a minority in the Islamic world, but they're a hostile and dangerous one. Imperial dreams die hard. But their goal has been constant conquest and domination, the imposition of Sharia Islamic law as they interpret it. They talk of the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. Peace will come not uh, by the signing of treaties, but when infidels, heretics, apostates abide in the Dar al-Islam, which means the house of submission. In theory, submission to Allah and his will. In reality, in practice, it's submission to these conquerors and their will. Now, many members of the commentariat here in Washington, on the left and the right, uh, don't agree with what I'm saying, don't think it's true, or don't think it's relevant. They prefer to talk about violent extremists, and they believe skillful diplomats can cut deals with those they believe to be moderates in the Taliban and in Tehran. They also think, I would argue, in outdated and binary terms. In their minds, either we are at peace or we're at war, they naturally prefer the, prefer the former, and they fret that forcefully responding to attacks by our enemies puts us 
on the brink. You heard that word a lot recently from Martin and Dick and Tucker Carlson. Puts us on the brink of the latter, on the brink of war. But any time our enemies kill us and get away with it, they win and they're encouraged to continue. The seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 79, the suicide bombing of American embassies in Beirut and Kuwait in 1983, the first attack on the World Trade Center in 1993, we responded to these acts of war as though they were one-offs, as, as though they were committed by common criminals. Well, naturally enough, other attacks followed. For example, in 1996, 1998, 2000, and of course, 2001. The prospect of fighting long-term, low-intensity conflicts, gray zone wars, is not pleasant. It's more comforting to predict, as President Obama did, that the tide of war is receding. Or to paste a bumper sticker on your Prius uh, demanding that endless wars be ended. But think about it. If you're in a boxing match and you put your arms down, does the fight end? Well, maybe, but you're sprawling across the canvas when it does. Now, we're not just talking theory here. Experiments have been run. President Obama said he didn't support the idea of endless war. So in 2011, he pulled our troops out of, Af out of Iraq. Three years later, the Islamic State had risen from the ashes of al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia. Mr. Obama sent troops back to Iraq in an effort to protect the vital national security interests he had put in jeopardy. But by then, we were at a, at a disadvantage, one we've yet to overcome. President Trump also has vowed to end endless wars. Over the past year, however, U.S. troop strength in the Middle East has increased. That has frustrated the ambitions of both the Islamic State and its main competitor, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Good work there. One more misconception, I believe, among our chattering classes, that peace is natural and armed conflicts an aberration. In On the Origins of War and the Preservation of Peace, published 25 years ago, the great scholar Donald Kagan wrote that war has been a persistent part of human experience since before the birth of civilization. He went on to note that in 1968, Will and Ariel Durant calculated that there had been only 268 years free of war in the previous 3,421. Wars are produced by an ineluctable competition for power. Those waging war against us want us to submit to their will, or they want to kill us. What part of death to America is hard to understand? If you agree with what I posited, it leads uh, to this conclusion. Our goal in Afghanistan probably should not have been, and certainly should not be now, the kind of victory we achieved in World War I or World War II, neither of which, I might point out, proved to be a war to end all wars. On the contrary, World War I led to World War II, and World War II led to the Cold War, a conflict not entirely dissimilar to what we have underway right now. In the current conflict, I'd argue, uh, our theory of victory should be modest, as I think General Keene suggested. Our theory of victory, we should be aiming to satisfy a few fundamental and necessary policy objectives. And we can and we should debate what those are. My two cents we need to frustrate the ambitions of our enemies. We need to contain them as much as possible. We need to weaken them over time. We need to prevent Afghanistan from becoming what it was, a safe haven and launching pad for terrorists. Can we learn to fight uh, and prevail in gray zone conflicts? I'm confident we can. 
if we decide that's the mission we need to accomplish. And so far, we haven't done that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Chris Colinda. Uh, Chris is the uh, adjunct senior fellow for the Center for New American Security, CNAS. Um, he uh, has uh, on-the-ground experience in Afghanistan, having served there um, in uh, 2007 and eight, right? I think it was the Vicenza rotation after I was there in 2005. That was during the diet period, as <laughs> General Keene described it. <laughs> um, and also uh, to help um, promote something of his, he has a, a book out recently, right, on leadership, or is it fairly recent? Or it's been out a while. It's been, okay, well, it's out there. So it's check. Sold 50,000 copies. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So you should be uh, checking Amazon. Uh, Check Amazon after the event, not on your phone right now, please. So anyway, I'll turn it over to you, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, so as Luke mentioned, I, I spent um, a lot of quality time on the ground in Afghanistan, probably four, um, total of uh, four years from the time period 2007 to 2014. And when I was not in the ground, uh, on the ground in Afghanistan, I was in the uh, Pentagon uh, working on Afghanistan strategy. Um, I was the first commander to have fought the Taliban as a commander in combat and then participated in negotiations with them in the early peace process from 2010 to, uh, to 2013 and then some engagements after that. Um, so overall, our goal is a favorable and durable outcome in Afghanistan. And what that looks like is an Afghanistan that's not a terror platform. Uh, I think we, we're, we're all in agreement on that. And Afghanistan that is at ideally at peace with itself and its neighbors. And the most <clears throat> feasible course of action or the most feasible path to get there is uh, a peace process, I believe, but one that needs to be done well rather than poorly. You, know, you can't be, have spent a lot of time on the ground in Afghanistan and not want to stay involved in Afghanistan. And I think the United States should stay involved in Afghanistan, uh, but maybe in a different posture than what we are now. So I'd like to talk about uh, five shifts from conventional wisdom in terms of how we get there in a, in a, in a more pragmatic way. Uh, first one is, we ought to, the first shift is we ought to shift from a September of 2001 mentality in which we were a sole superpower attacked by uh, a terrorist group on 9-11 to a January 2020 mentality where we're now in an era of great power competition. Our domestic and international counterterrorism platforms are far different and far more effective in January 2020 than they were in September of 2001. And Afghanistan that is friendly and stable lowers the likelihood of terror safe haven substantially and also provides us access to return there with combat troops if needed, if such a terror safe haven does emerge. So the bottom line is that the geopolitics and the terror threat uh, since September of uh, 2001 have changed. And the United States security posture, United States strategy for dealing with these global threats should adapt as well. Second is, uh, as we look at a peace process, we need to shift our focus from policy wonkery to recognizing the real emotions involved in the conflict. Decision-making, after all, 
is not based on rational policy analysis, as much as it pains me to say this at a think tank. <laughs> Decisions, especially about war and war termination, are made based on emotion. And then the rationality often follows afterwards. Um, and there's a whole uh, host of academic literature on how decisions are actually made and the importance of emotions. And right now, the governing emotion involving Afghanistan, uh, particularly around a peace process, is fear. And uh, in many ways, that, that fear is uh, justified. The Afghan government fears losing power. Afghan civil society fears turning back the clock to the Taliban time or the Afghan civil war time um, in which the warlords uh, tore the country apart. And the most popular thing the Taliban ever did was overthrow the warlords. Um, and then the Taliban, of course, did all sorts of things to make themselves deeply unpopular. Um, the United States fears a new terror threat emerging in Afghanistan. The Taliban fears U.S. trickery and perfidy. Will the U.S. just back out of whatever agreement they sign, just like the U.S. backed out of the um, Iran nuclear agreement, for instance, uh, they, like to, they like to say. Uh, Pakistan certainly fears Afghanistan and India are going to team up to dismantle the Pakistani state. Uh, India fears Pakistan is going to control Afghanistan for their own purposes. Iran's got their fears of U.S. designs in Afghanistan. And Russia certainly fears NATO and would love to see America continue to be stuck in Afghanistan um, as a means to undermine NATO. So a peace process has got to deal with the realities of these emotions if it's going to have any sort of chance or prospects of success. The third shift is from scaremongering to testing. So fear is creating all sorts of uh, spoiler, blocker, obstructive behaviors among the different parties, whether it's elements within the Taliban senior leadership or the Afghan government or the U.S. policy establishment. And those fears are entirely justifiable because they have not been addressed. Afghanistan is a classic prisoner's dilemma. Everybody recognizes the value um, of a peaceful outcome, but nobody trusts the others enough to take any risks to get there. So we don't know if the Taliban can make and keep credible commitments, and we haven't tested it. We don't know if the Afghan government and elites are going to be able to make and keep credible commitments. That hasn't been tested either. Uh, we don't know if the United States, or the Taliban at least, doesn't know if the United States is going to abide by whatever agreement it makes. Uh, we don't know if regional actors can stop stirring up conflict in Afghanistan. And, but we do know, or ideally, a good and thoughtful uh, peace process will begin to deal with these fears, um, or at least begin to test the credibility of these actors to know whether we ought to proceed or whether we ought to move in a different direction. So that leads to shift number four, from Hail Marys to first downs. Uh, I would hope that we start making new mistakes in Afghanistan when it comes to the peace process. And one of those new mistakes is please stop going for the Hail Mary. Please stop going for the big deal. Deal is a four-letter word uh, when it comes to this effort because of the lack of trust and all of the emotion that rightly built up after 40 years of conflict post 9-11 etc. So instead of going for the big deal, the Harold Mary that's hatched in secret and suddenly revealed and expecting everybody to be on board with it, 
It doesn't happen in the real world. What happens in the real world, if you want the peace process to be sustainable, is you start getting some first downs. And you start getting some first downs by uh, testing credibility, by conducting confidence-building measures and tests that show whether the other side can keep credible commitments or they can't. And when you know that, you move in one direction um, or, or another. Uh, finally, uh, the last shift is from wishful thinking to realistic options. Um, look, Afghan, many Afghan elites have not been uh, good partners in this effort. Uh, they have helped move Afghan government into a predatory kleptocracy, uh, which has damaged U.S. national security interests and damaged U.S. efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, India and Pakistan, not going to change their strategic calculus, neither Russia and, uh, and Iran. President Trump is probably not going to stay in Afghanistan. The Taliban is probably not going to collapse. I mean, even if you believe 15 to 20 percent of the Afghan people support the Taliban, that's five to six million people. When you look at um, how, when you look at the prospects of a successful counterinsurgency, there are really two factors that are salient. The first one is, can the host nation, or does the um, insurgency have external sanctuary and, and sufficient indigenous local support? The Taliban does. Uh, an insurgency that has those um, factors behind it has never been decisively defeated. Second, can the host nation government retake and retain insurgent-controlled territory? And if the answer is no, the host nation government has never won a decisive victory. Well, unfortunately, both factors are not in favor of decisive victory and probably unlikely to change. And finally, the Afghan people's patience for infinite combat on their soil, in their villages, and in their homes, we should not assume to be infinite. So decisive victory, probably not likely. Uh, transition the fight from the... Uh, you know, towards the Afghan government, so they take on the whole responsibility and we leave. Probably not a recipe for success. We saw that in Iraq. If we just left right now, we might be right back uh, in Afghanistan. We don't need to follow the Obama playbook on that, nor do we need to follow the Obama playbook on timelines. Staying forever, probably not likely for a lot of different reasons. So your peace process is probably the best shot to get a favorable and durable outcome that meets our interests. It just needs to be done well. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Chris. I remember about 18 months ago we were talking about this, and you used a baseball analogy, hitting singles instead of hitting the grand slam. I see you know you've shifted it. to football. Well, yeah, it's football. Can I read anything into that? Football. Okay, I'll okay. The <laughs> right, thanks. And our final speaker is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Threlkeld. Uh, she is a fellow and the deputy director for the South Asia program at the Stimson Center, and she is also a former foreign service officer who spent time in many places around the world, but uh, applicable to today's talk in Pakistan. Thank you. All right, thanks so much for having me and to my fellow panelists. Um, I will today probably echo some of um, what we just heard from Chris in terms of a call for a new approach and a more realistic approach, um, moving away from wishful thinking in Afghanistan. I'll lay out first the context of how I see the situation as it stands, um, talk about what some of those current challenges are, um, advise an approach going forward, um, but then also draw out some of the regional implications um, for that approach. So in terms of how I see the context of the current situation in Afghanistan, um, 
I would say our hand is only getting weaker as time passes. Um, in other words, U.S. leverage is a wasting asset. Um, the situation is at best a stalemate, and more money and, and more time are unlikely to accomplish what they haven't been able to in the last 19 years. Um, that's not to say that the U.S. military and our um, foreign partners haven't fought valiantly. Uh, they certainly have, but as I see it, the situation now um, is a political conflict and asking military forces to resolve a political and ideological um, conflict is a recipe for what we've seen, um, which is a continued impasse. Um, I would also point out that, to my view, the, the very presence of U.S. and foreign troops on the ground in Afghanistan serves as a motivation um, for some among, among the Taliban to fight um, the idea of ridding the country of a foreign invading force. Um, to my view, we will be best able to secure the gains that have been made militarily by shifting to a robust negotiating posture. Um, looking for an agreement now rather than kicking that can further down the road. I think I've heard consensus or at least general consensus that negotiations are um, in U.S. interests. Obviously, there is a question then of what that means, what are the specifics of ne negotiations, and that's where things do get fraught. Um, the current challenge, as I see it, that we do face in negotiations is the U.S. is in a position of trying to talk out of both sides in our mouth in a way. Um, so we are simultaneously trying to convince the Afghan government, Afghan elites, um, as well as regional powers that we are serious about leaving while we're simultaneously trying to broadcast to the Taliban that we have staying power and that they have an interest in negotiating with us. Um, so to unpack that a little bit, Afghan elites stand to lose if the U.S. departs from Afghanistan. Um, there's the risk of instability. There's loss of influence. Um, there is a certain amount of um, patronage and, and pie to go around, and as soon as more people would come into that mix, everyone would get less. Um, simultaneously, regional states don't want a precipitous U.S. withdrawal either because there is a risk of return to all-out conflict, um, so more insecurity, potential for refugee flows across the border into Pakistan and Iran, for example. Um, and so I think there is a consensus around this need to at least manage the process such that greater instability doesn't break out of Afghanistan. Um, so again, for Afghan elites, for regional powers, there is an interest in maintaining um, the idea that were the U.S. to leave, the situation could actually get worse. Simultaneously, though, from the Taliban standpoint, um, they have no reason to negotiate if a few months down the line the U.S. is simply going to precipitously withdraw. And so the idea of making concessions at the no negotiating table and striking a settlement is less appealing if you think um, that you can simply wait out a U.S. presence and gain more without a settlement. Doing both of those things, pushing forward both of those messages simultaneously, is a very difficult task. Um, I think what that means for our approach is it's important to remember that we do still, in that, hold useful leverage over all sides of this conflict. So if what the Taliban want most is a U.S. troop withdrawal, then as we've heard today, we should ensure that the structure of any agreement with the Taliban um, conditions further reductions of troops on benchmarks of progress, including in intra-Afghan talks, 
um, on up to adoption of a constitution and formal incorporation into a political process. Um, so anything in terms of precipitous withdrawal would give away leverage that I think is very useful in terms of ensuring that even if we do see a sequenced agreement where it is the US and the Taliban first followed by intra-Afghan talks, um, the difficult part of that process will be the intra-Afghan negotiations. Even though the US and Taliban have been formally at the table for over a year, the hard part really is just beginning. Um, and so holding on to the leverage that the US does have will be valuable in that process. Um, simultaneous to that, in terms of leverage with the Afghan government and Afghan elites more broadly, um, they are dependent on political and financial support from the US and from our resolute support partners. Um, and so we should clearly indicate that continued support, uh, both financial and political, is conditioned on progress in the peace process. Um, that if we don't see progress moving forward, there is a risk of declining political and financial support, indeed as US patience um, draws down. So there is, I would say, um, a useful and indeed rare area of overlapping interests among regional states in terms of ensuring stability in Afghanistan. Um, as I mentioned, a return to all-out conflict in Afghanistan would threaten security potentially in China, in Pakistan, in India, in Iran, in Russia, and elsewhere. Um, there are certainly different interests among those powers. Um, but I've heard repeatedly, I was just in the region on travel, and the potential breakdown of security further in Afghanistan is high on the minds um, of many regional interlocutors. And so I think there is a unanimity of efforts to at least prevent that from happening, even if the approach that sides are putting forward um, isn't necessarily consistent. I think in this process, maintaining momentum is crucial, um, particularly after President Trump's sudden cancellation of the deal in August. There is a lack of trust in the sincerity um, of the US negotiation effort. Um, and the risk of that is that if they don't believe the US is sincere, if they don't believe that we are genuinely going to come out of this with a deal, that they will start taking other steps to protect their own interests, making side deals. There's going to be an issue of um, multiple cooks in the kitchen. And to allay those fears, I think, moving forward, and as Chris was mentioning, even if it is um, on the basis of relatively smaller CVMs, getting those singles before we look for a home run, that is how you move forward in this process um, rather than risking, again, a, a full-scale blow-up of the effort that has been made. Um, simultaneously maintaining support in Congress and among our allies for what will be um, much needed financial support after any sort of deal is struck is going to be crucial. Um, it seems to me that our money seems to follow our troops. And so if we are to see a withdrawal of US forces in Afghanistan um, conditioned over time based on these um, accomplishments at the negotiating table, that does not mean that the US assistance to Afghanistan um, should draw down simultaneously. I think it's going to be all the more necessary going forward. Um, but making sure that politically that's viable and that those um, mechanisms are in place is crucial going forward. Briefly, in terms of regional considerations, um, as we heard from the general, all, any deal that is struck will be framed as a propaganda victory for the Taliban, full stop. Um, and I think we and our partners should anticipate um, the counterterrorism threat that that does pose. Um,
um, not just in Afghanistan, but more widely, for example, in Kashmir, um, would come to mind. Um, so preparing for that, being mindful of the risk, and managing with our partners and allies will be crucial. Um, I would also mention that we should avoid conflict with Iran, um, which would dangerously destabilize Afghanistan and beyond. There are deep linkages between the two sides, and it's important to bear in mind that what happens in one does have an impact on the other. And finally, I would recommend that we recognize that tensions between Afghanistan and Pakistan are acute um, and will continue to shape outcomes in Afghanistan. Um, Pakistan, as we've heard, um, perceives a threat to its domestic stability coming from across the border in Afghanistan, indeed, with support from India. Those fears are overblown, but they are genuinely felt. Um, and so recognizing what those tensions of bilateral tensions between Afghanistan and Pakistan exist over and above um, the conflict in Afghanistan and indeed will continue to shape the outcomes that we see in Afghanistan going forward uh, will also be vital in ensuring U.S. interest in a, sust a sustainable solution um, in Afghanistan. <coughs> Thank you. Great. Th thanks, Elizabeth. And thanks uh, to the panelists for staying right on time. I appreciate that. As the moderator, it's rare. That it happens, but it happened today, so thank you. Uh, we have time for some questions. Um, I'm going to, the lady over here, don't, I'll get to you, sir, but since you already had one, I just want to make sure it's, uh, we have some microphones. Again, please um, state your name and any affiliation and keep your question straight to the yes, point. Thanks. This may be a simple yes or no. I'm Amy Jika, and I'm mostly a law student, so my question relates to legal issues. Um, since the ICC dropped the investigation into Afghanistan and President Trump has pardoned or reduced sanctions, we could say, against individuals, um, do you see any possibility or any worry that U.S. citizens could be prosecuted or held legally liable for anything that may or may not have occurred while they were in Afghanistan? Yes, please. Well, I, I, I would remind you of uh, John Bolton's talk uh, on this subject in I think a year ago, maybe 2018, to the Federalist Society. I think his view is still the view of the current administration, and his view is that the ICC has absolutely no authority over the U.S. whatsoever, and that if it attempts to exercise that authority, there will be repercussions, including sanctions on the judges and others, and that there will be diplomatic efforts to make sure no country goes along with the IC if it attempts to do that. So um, I think that I think that's where this administration went. Now, again, a year from now, we may have a different administration with a different view to the ICC, but I think right now we're ignoring the ICC determinedly. Anyone else want to? Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to go to the gentleman back here, then I'll go to you next, I promise. The gentleman back here, there's a microphone. Hi. Um, I'm Anu from Center for Security Policy. Um, so, and very much against the U.S. negotiation with the Taliban, partly from what I've seen from research and with a friend who's fought against the Taliban in the Afghani military. But um, there's one thing that you were talking about, the, the trust that they have lost in the U.S. when uh, the president put out of the deal. And that's partly because they've attacked U.S. troops. And I know the, um, the uh, general said something um, about the hotheads in the Taliban who don't agree to anything the Taliban are doing, but they have, they have failed to control those people. So what trust can we put in them when they continue to attack U.S. personnel and we're still supposed to sort of come to a deal with them? How, how does that work out? Anyone want to? 
I think that was directed to you, Chris. But. <laughs> I'll take that one on. And, and look, I've spent a lot of time fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. I've got former, um, my soldiers buried in Arlington National Cemetery um, and else, elsewhere. Um, so I have got no, uh, no affection whatsoever. Uh, I've seen what they have done to um, Afghan people. Um, and we're right to be skeptical. You know, the, the only time that their bona fides have been really tested, uh, well, twice, first was with the, uh, with the Bergdahl exchange, um, in which uh, the United States uh, worked with the Taliban's political commission in Doha and coordinated a, um, a retrieval of Bergdahl in a hostile zone, uh, you know, very, very delicate operation. Um, oh, by the way, Bergdahl is being held by the Haqqanis, um, and, and ultimately, because uh, of that coordination um, and the skill of the folks on our side, that went off without a hitch. Um, regardless of what you believe on the merits of, of the whole effort, um, that was an example of the Taliban um, making a commitment and keeping it. The second one was the uh, ceasefire in 2017 over Eid. The Taliban essentially asked their fighters to take a day off or a holiday off, and they did. Um, but other than that, there hasn't been really any systematic testing of their ability to make and keep commitments. Uh, there's a lot of speculation as to the degree of Taliban political cohesion. Um, General Keane thinks it's very uh, limited. Others, uh, myself included, think it's more robust than we believe, the ceasefire being uh, you know, one example of that. But we just don't know until we really test it. And then from the Taliban's point of view, you, know, you can look at an issue through their eyes and have no sympathy whatsoever for it. Uh, when you look at the situation from their point of view, they don't, um, they don't see the United States as a trustworthy negotiating partner, and they will line up facts on their side um, as to why they come to that conclusion. So, um, so you know, that's why you're swinging for the fences, going for the Hail Mary pass, deal is a four-letter word. All of those different things um, suggest that if, if we take that kind of approach to this peace process, we're likely to get a collapse. But if we um, start hitting some singles, get some first downs, whatever analogy you want to use, um, you're more likely to test credibility. And, 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 and then you can make an informed choice one way or another. I'll just add to that really fast. I'm often asked this about the issue of trust. And unless there is finally an agreement someday between the Afghan government and the Taliban, then there is no agreement at all. And ultimately, it will be for the Afghan people and the Afghan government to trust the, the Taliban. Uh, we'll have a more of a secondary role in that, whether we like it or not. Um, right. The gentleman here, then we'll hop over here. Um, uh, Mr. May, uh, I agree with you that, you know, you give historical perspective of Muslim. They've been brutal, ruthless, and very vicious people from the very beginning. What they did 1,500 years ago in Spain, why don't we nuke them? And uh, Elizabeth, I just wondered that, how did you end up in this neocon group? And Mr. Hakani, I agree with you that, you know, these Balochi, Sindhi, and Pathan, they are four or 500 years, 1,000 years old. Uh, but don't you think that current Indian Prime Minister has proven uh, by his behavior that these Muslims did a good job by making a country for themselves? 
I, I mean, I know you make your living trashing Pakistan, and uh, if you had any conscience and any integrity, you wouldn't accept Pakistani ambassadorship. You have. Right, thank you. I think you made each, you made your points. I think Thanks. all those questions were facetious in nature. So we're going to move on to um, the the young boy over here, the young man over here. Thank you. Kind of hard to follow that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Julio. Don't try, please. <laughs> never, never put a news show after Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, my name is Julio. I'm a senior writer over at Town Hall Media. Uh, I just kind of wanted to ask, because uh, the reason why I found this uh, panel interesting is because there's been just a lot of, I feel like there's a majority of people saying that we should uh, get out of Afghanistan. And so to have a panel saying, well, actually, we should stay in Afghanistan. Spring. So what, what would you, and I guess this is, to the whole panel, how would you address the vast majority, or feel like there is a majority of Americans who want to get out of out of Afghanistan, and specifically with a lot of veterans, because uh, I am on the distro list whenever we receive casualties, uh, and we just had two uh, recently at the beginning of this year, and I see a lot of veterans saying, "No, even you know, I've served there. It's time to get out." You know, how do you how do you even begin to address that? Because there's a lot of compelling arguments that you guys made here, but the, to the average American who doesn't necessarily have time to listen to this stuff and learn all of all of this, because it is a lot, how, how would you even begin to address that? Thank you. The very good question. Um, well, I mean, I'll, start, I'll just I'll maybe start. it's a good question to also kind of conclude the. Sure, I'll start. Start. Look, there, 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 in line with what I said before, this is one battle. You can lose a battle and still win the war. And we can make the decision that we're going to lose the battle of Afghanistan after all these years. That's a decision we absolutely can make. Uh, we do have to think, before we do that, what are the consequences for the United States, for the people of Afghanistan, for the people of Pakistan? What do we imagine happens after we decide to lose this battle, after we decide to allow the Taliban, after 19 years, to uh, establish the status quo ante, to retake the, the country? Will we, what will we lose in terms of intelligence gathering, in terms of forward basing, in terms of counterterrorism uh, abilities, in terms of air power general uh, re related to in that area? What's our strategy after we lose this battle? Again, if you see it as a battle in a larger war against jihadism in its various forms, you can lose it. Will it supercharge various jihadis, including in the Islamic Republic of Iran? I think it will. I definitely think it will. Will it supercharge ISIS and others? Will they say, as Ambassador Khani mentioned, okay, we, we, we brought down the Soviet Union. Now we've defeated the U.S. We are on the march. We are going to succeed in our, in our, in our goals. Generals who win battles have little difficulty attracting recruits. Generals who lose battles have a much more challenging job. So we can lose there, um, but then we know, but we do need to think through the ramifications of that. Uh, my quick answer to that is that um, the most important takeaway for me from General Keene's address was his point that uh, the American public has never been fully informed on Afghanistan. So the opinion that has been formed, we need to get away. Uh, a lot of people think of Iraq and Afghanistan as the same thing. That's not not true. Uh, Iraq was a war of choice. Afghanistan was not a war of choice. Uh, uh, the United States has actually ended up helping in creating very viable institutions and an effective government in Afghanistan. 
as effective as can be under the circumstances. It's not it's not a Jeffersonian democracy, but then you know, nor is any other country in that uh, immediate vicinity. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, then the uh, so so Bush administration got distracted with Iraq. President Obama didn't like wars, if you remember. I mean, he just didn't like it, the idea. So he initially painted the Iraq war as the bad war, that we need to get out of Afghan war as the good war. But then he did the surge. And I remember having said to him at that time, uh, Mr. President, announcing the surge and announcing a date of withdrawal at the same time will actually give a very different message. At least you have to know what the enemy thinks. But it was a political compulsion, and that happened. So we, so we know what happened with that. So I think that when those of us who think uh, that uh, the United States should not withdraw in a precipitate manner, and who think that there should be a peace process, by the way, I think that uh, Mr. Kolenda made it very clear that uh, no one is saying that there should not be a peace process. We agree with the peace process. I have consistently said that I want a peace process, not a withdrawal process. And so to point out that the current process, the way it's been going, the way the current special envoy has been um, sort of signaling things, he's giving the impression that the Americans are eager to withdraw. It may be a paradox, but America may be able to withdraw more easily if it doesn't appear to be eager to withdraw, because you have to be able to uh, uh, make the enemy think that you have it what it takes to stay and fight if that is necessary, but you are willing to talk. And so, therefore, a peace process that actually focuses on the Afghan government and the Taliban as the main partners, with the United States being the actor that essentially guarantees that peace process when it happens, just by way of invoking history. I know that some people, uh, uh, yeah, some people don't like history in this audience. We already, <laughs> we already realize that. But... Uh, in 1988, the Soviet Union did exactly the same thing that some people are proposing the Americans do, which is just get up and leave. They didn't, they didn't the, the Geneva Accords that uh, led to the Soviet withdrawal had no provision for what will happen in Afghanistan afterwards. And we know the consequence of that. We've seen that over the last several years. All we are saying is don't repeat that. I'll take a stab uh, at this yeah, one as well, if I can. Um, so... I think Julio, I I hear um, what Chris was referring to in terms of the the emotional pull um, of our investment in Afghanistan in your question, and I think that's yet another layer of this process that we're going to have to work through as a nation. Um, I did see a poll had come out by the Pew Research Center in July um, that reported that a full 58% of veterans and 59% of the public overall did not believe the war in Afghanistan was worth fighting. Um, I think those numbers are important to bear in mind. Um, and to my mind, what we owe our service members um, and those who have spent time on the ground in Afghanistan and indeed the Afghan people um, is a full and public accounting for what happened over the course of this war, for the decisions that were made so that we can learn from that going forward, um, the good and the bad. I would also say, though, that I don't feel um, that we should stay in Afghanistan militarily over the long term. As I said, I think 
our presence there is a wasting asset. We are losing leverage, uh, but that does not mean that we should precipitously withdraw. We need to double down and invest in the negotiation process. And even if we are to see those conditions met um, and further troop reductions made, simultaneously to a military withdrawal, we need to see so much more investment in our diplomatic core and in our intelligence assets and in our law enforcement capabilities to be able to sustain um, and move forward with um, Afghanistan in the future. Chris, any final? Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for that great question. Yeah, I'd, I'd first like to say that there are a lot of Afghans who put their lives on the line uh, for myself and for my soldiers, and I am eternally grateful um, for that. I've got soldiers who are alive today because Afghans put themselves on the line. Um, I think it's uh, we should exercise caution before um, drawing a straight line from negotiation to um, Taliban takeover and losing. Um, you lose in a negotiation when you pay more than you can possibly afford and you get less than what you need. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case here in Afghanistan. If you, if we negotiate well. Uh, because we still have leverage to do that, we can uh, we can get a process um, going that results in a favorable and durable outcome that meets our interests and respects the dignity um, of the service and sacrifices of Americans and Afghans and internationals alike. Thanks. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, our panelists uh, for their remarks. Um, I'll conclude this with a quick quote from, first, from Lieutenant Winston Churchill. Lieutenant Winston Churchill, not Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Lieutenant from 1897 when he was fighting the Pashtuns in modern-day Afghan-Pakistan border. He said, there are no general actions on a great scale, no brilliant successes, no important surrenders, and no chance for a coup de theater. It is just a rough, hard job which must be carried through. The war is one of small incidents, the victory must be looked for in the results. And I think we all agree that what we're seeing in Afghanistan through the peace process, through the train, advise, and assist, the counterterrorism operation, it is a process and not an event. Uh, so I, I would like to, again, thank everyone for coming today, thank the panelists, and um, this will be online uh, for you to watch again if you so wish. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Great moderation. Mr. Maskey.